So it's Matthew 2, 13 to 23. And we pick up after the uh, Magi have uh, just uh, been and uh, visited Jesus and, uh, and given um, Jesus and his parents the gifts. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And when he stayed until the, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Cool. I'm just going to pray for Deb and uh, then we'll get into the word. So Father God, we thank you for this amazing woman of God. And um, Lord, just, just the, the life that uh, you've given her and, and that, um, yeah, you just shine through her, Father God. And um, yeah, we thank you that... She's just such a reflection of, of who you are, Lord Jesus, and um, yeah, just the, the blessing that she is to uh, uh, all of us um, around, Father God, and yeah, we just thank you for the, the words that you're going to speak through her this morning, um, and yeah, just that uh, we thank you that it's going to touch our hearts, and yeah, we pray that we're open and ready to receive everything that you want to share with us this morning, God. Amen. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> All right, so a little quick apology this morning. Um, this morning's a bit of a history lesson. Um, I used to think history was incredibly boring, and during the studies I've been doing towards my diploma, I've actually found a little secret history nerd inside me that I didn't even know was there, so apologies. <laughs> so a story so far. A girl falls pregnant out of wedlock. Her fiancé considers divorce but decides to marry her. The rulers of their land force them to travel for miles and miles to register for a census and the girl goes into labour. Finding nowhere to stay, she's forced to give birth in a stable and use a feed trough for the baby. The king, who hears from foreign dignitaries about the birth of a new king who could take his throne, kills all the boys two and under just to make sure he gets who he's after. The couple and their baby flee for their lives and become refugees in a foreign country. Sounds like the makings of a reality TV show. It also makes you wonder, why on earth would God put them through that all, through all of that? Why would God send them all that way, only to go back to where they started? Where was God in it all? Why didn't he make it all easier for them? Have you ever wondered why some things happen and where God is in it all? 
Well, people in the 17th and 18th centuries thought the same and a philosophy rose called deism and it suggested that God was like a clockmaker and the universe was a clock. God made the clock, governed how it would work, wound it up, set it in motion and then had nothing else to do with it. The philosophy, of course, was completely wrong. God is at work, God is active, God is alive and God is with us. The evidence of that is here in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. Here in Matthew's Gospel is the opposite of deism. We see theism at work instead. God interacting with the world and the people in it through revelation and prophecy, intervention in human history, communication with individual humans. This part of the story that we're looking at today highlights for me one of the names of Jesus which we often sing at Christmas time. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's pray as we look at his word this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we read it, we can see you for who you are, a God who cares and a God who throughout history has been an alive, involved God. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that is with us always, not a distant or an uninvolved God. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. Lord, I pray that my words won't get in the way of the message you have for everyone this morning. I pray that we will all know you as a God who wants to be involved in every part of our lives and who wants a relationship with each and every one of us each and every single day. Help us to open our hearts to you fully so that we can experience the fullness of your plan for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this passage in Matthew is notable because of three times the prophecy is fulfilled and we're going to look at the passage this morning according to those three things. It's not prophecy in the sense of a prediction accomplishment but rather analogically or story-wise. That is, it corresponds to something that happened in the Old Testament but more on that later. This passage also is notable because of the recurrent dreams by which Joseph was guided from place to place not just any places, but specific ones, which are named in the passage. Both the fulfilment of prophecy and the dreams Joseph had show that their changes in location were not haphazard, but were directed by God and had been foreshadowed by scripture. God communicated with them, God directed them, and God was with them. So that's how we're going to look at our passage this morning with those three sections. So first we have the escape to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled that what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So in our passage today, we find Joseph asleep in bed again when an angel appears. What would you do if one night you were sound asleep in bed and an angel appears telling you the life of your child is in danger? Would you have stayed in bed? Would you have waited until morning just to make sure that there was danger before you packed up and left? Or would you immediately get up, pack up and run? Well, that's what Joseph did. So why Egypt? Um, sorry for my bodgy map, but it shows where the Israel-Egypt border is, that big black line through the middle of it all. The Egyptian border laid about 80 miles from Bethlehem. 
The main Jewish community in Egypt was in Alexandria, which was the capital of Egypt at that time. And there was about a million Jews living there. But we don't actually know where the family went while they lived in Egypt. Tradition names lots of sites, but they certainly weren't the only Jews living in Egypt. Egypt had been a traditional place of refuge for Jews for many centuries. The large Jewish population in Egypt dated from the time of Jeremiah, when all the Israelites fled to escape um, the Babylonians. That story can be found in Jeremiah chapter 41. Plus, Egypt was a Roman province and was outside Herod's jurisdiction, so the family would have been safe almost anywhere in Egypt. Matthew says, though, that they went to Egypt to fulfil prophecy. There are a few ways Jesus' life fulfils prophecy according to Matthew. One is the fulfilment of a specific prediction, such as the virgin birth or righteousness. The second is when Jesus brings full meaning to an entire passage of Old Testament scripture, such as when he says he hasn't come to abolish the law but to fulfil it. The third way Matthew uses to fulfil uses the word fulfil is to indicate the way which Jesus' earthly life and ministry correspond to the history of Israel. Matthew has this view in mind when he quotes Hosea in verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea is referring to Israel. The nation Israel, as God's son, went to Egypt, had been called out of Egypt, had been rescued and delivered by God. God would make a covenant with them and would provide a path to salvation for all people. In Matthew, Jesus as a baby goes to Egypt, has been called out of Egypt and is God's son like no other. He has been rescued and delivered by God. (coughs) Jesus will be God's new covenant and he will be the ultimate and only way to salvation for all people. Is this a coincidence? Is this just the universe ticking along by itself and any parallels between Jesus' life and the Old Testament just coincidence? Matthew sees striking parallels in the patterns of God's activities in history in ways he cannot attribute to coincidence. Matthew points out that Jesus' infancy corresponds analogically or story-wise to Israel's history. What began under the old covenant with Israel has been made complete in Jesus. The life of Jesus is the historical completion of the process of redemption that began with Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. The pattern of history makes sense when we see Jesus as the key to unlocking it. History is his story. Through his story, God is at work, God is active, God is alive and God is with us. What may seem as a haphazard series of moves for Joseph and his family are actually changes in location that were directed by God and foreshadowed by scripture. These changes are anchored in real time, in real places. They were prophesied centuries before the birth of Jesus and we read some of their fulfilment here in Matthew. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. Matthew's Gospel quotes 21 prophecies that were fulfilled in circumstances surrounding the life and death of Jesus. These are not coincidences. They are God-orchestrated events. Astronomer and mathematician Peter Stoner offers a mathematical analysis that is impossible uh, that it is impossible that the precise statements 
about the Messiah could be filled in a single person by mere coincidence. The chance of only eight prophecies of the dozens in scripture being fulfilled in the life of one man has been estimated at one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's one chance in 100 quadrillion or a one with 17 zeros over it. And I'm so disappointed that Dave Anderson isn't here today because I thought I'd throw that in for him. (laughs) How can we put this in terms we can comprehend? Dr Stoner illustrates the scenario with this. Take 10 to the 17 or 100 quadrillion silver dollars. Lay them on the face of Texas with its approximate land area of 262,000 miles. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say it is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing eight prophecies and having them true in one man. But that was only the chance of fulfilling eight prophecies. You can see the number up there for 48. Jesus filled a whole lot more. So you get the idea that these are not coincidences. Jesus' life story followed that of Israel's, not because it was coincidental, but because God planned it that way and made it happen along the way. God is at work, God is active, God is alive, and God is with us. Part two of our message today is how Herod was outwitted and how he retaliated. And I'd really like to thank Nick for giving me the goriest part of the nativity story on a week when the kids are in here with us. I will try and keep it G-rated. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice that is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As Nick told us last week, although Herod was the king of the Jews, he wasn't actually a Jew. He was an Egyptian and was really a puppet king for the Romans. Herod's position was always in question from the Jewish people and last week we heard that when he heard that there was a new Jewish king, he had asked the Magi to let him know when they found him so he could worship him, but he really wasn't going to do that. But before we judge Herod too harshly, maybe we should think about what we would do in that situation if we were faced with the loss of everything we knew. Would we defend all that we had like Herod did? We may not kill people to defend our careers or lifestyle, but we probably often aren't willing to surrender it either. Herod wasn't really a Jew and therefore shouldn't really have held the position he had. And like we said, he was a Roman puppet. Herod's father had supported Pompey's campaign when Pompey invaded Palestine. Herod himself was friends with Mark Antony and Julius Caesar supported the family. Julius Caesar had made Herod's father a Roman citizen and this honour descended to Herod and his children. When civil war broke out in Judea in 37 BC, Herod fled to Rome. There he pleaded his case and the Roman Senate appointed him as the king of Judea, equipped him with an army so that he could go back home and take control. 
and there he became the unchallenged ruler for 32 years. But during this time, Cleopatra was ruling in Egypt and at one time claimed much of Herod's prime land. But Octavian, later known as Caesar Augustus, knew Herod would rule Palestine, Palestine the way Rome liked it and restored the land to him, confirmed him as king and twice increased the land that Herod ruled. So Herod was Rome's creature and Rome liked having rulers in their provinces who would look after their interests. Herod didn't want to lose his position or favour and didn't want a legitimate Jew to take the claim on his throne. So Jesus had to go. We don't find another historical record of the verse of what happened in verse 16. But Herod's revenge on Bethlehem was entirely in character. In his paranoid defence of his throne, he disposed of many people who he thought were trying to claim his throne, including three of his sons, his favourite wife, his brother-in-law and others. One historian quotes Roman Emperor Augustus as saying, it is better to be Herod's pig than a son because a pig was pretty safe around a Jew. Herod's infamous career saw many, many horrendous acts and the event of verse 16 doesn't really rate a mention in the history books because he did so much more that was worse. Given the size of Bethlehem at the time, the estimate could be about 10 to 30 boys were eliminated. It might be easy to dismiss that as an insignificant event or number, like historians have, but if you were any one of those parents of any one of those boys, it would be the most traumatic thing you had ever been through. So when did all this happen? We can roughly date when all this happened. Matthew 2 verse 1 states that Jesus was born during the days of Herod. Herod died in 4 BC. Jesus must have been born before that. Further, after Joseph and Mary fled to Bethlehem with Jesus, Herod ordered all the boys two years old and younger in the vicinity killed. This indicates that Jesus could have been as old as two before Herod's death. This places his date of birth about 6 BC. Shortly after the Magi visit Herod and he orders the murder of the infant boys, Herod became deathly ill with a painful terminal illness. One article I read says that doctors have looked at Herod's symptoms and have now settled on exactly what killed Herod and the diagnosis is this, chronic kidney disease complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of parts of his body that I am not mentioning on a Sunday morning. He then died in 4 BC. It might be a little hard to see this, but it's a great timeline and I found it on uh, Bible Gateway's blog site if you want to look it up later. The dark purple line in the middle towards the top is Herod's life. The yellow, blue and red lines a bit further down is Joseph, Mary and Jesus. And the black line is the Magi, which, we, which you can see the birth of Jesus in there and then the return to Nazareth up in the top right-hand corner. I know it's not very clear, but please have a look at that later online. I thought it was a great timeline. You might be wondering why Jesus was born about 6 BC. Shouldn't he be born in 1 AD? After all, BC stands for before Christ. How can Christ be born before Christ? Well, our modern dating system of BC and AD and the dating of Jesus' birth was first worked out by a guy called Dionysus in AD 525. Prior to that, everyone used the Roman way of dating things. 
Dionysus did the very best he could with the information he had available and he worked out when he thought Jesus was born and the AD BC began. However, Dionysus didn't have all the historical data available to scholars now to make a more precise dating. So Jesus being born in 6 BC has nothing to do with biblical accuracy. The Bible is correct. The difference has to do with a well-intentioned but misguided Christian monk from the 6th century. So in our story, the Magi visit, all the boys to and under are killed, telling us Herod wanted to make sure he killed the boys in that time frame. As Herod attempts to eliminate the newborn king of the Jews, the events of Jesus' earthly life correspond to the earlier attempt by a foreign power to wipe out God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, there was a temple at Jerusalem in the middle of the Promised Land. The Israelite people were the priests maintaining worship to the one true God, providing a path of salvation for all people of all nations. Assyria and Babylon had sought to wipe this out. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Bethlehem's grief in our story today is a tragic reminder of the heartache experienced earlier in Israel's history. And Matthew tells us this fulfills what Jeremiah had prophesied centuries earlier. Rachel represents all the mothers of Israel who mourned as their children were taken away. God's people were taken into exile and scattered far and wide and the temple was destroyed. But God had a plan, a plan to bring salvation to all people of all nations for all time. The Assyrians and Babylonians had tried to wipe out God's plan of salvation and now Herod is attempting the same. Herod's attempt is not only to try and wipe out the threat of his own throne and position, but his attack is against the salvation plan that God had. But God's protection was over Jesus. God's protection was over his plan of salvation for all of us. No one, not even Herod, had the power to muck that up. So we have Mary and Jesus and Joseph living as refugees in Egypt. After travelling around for this long, my kids would be asking, are we there yet? In verse 19, the angel appears once again to Joseph in a dream. This is the fourth of five dreams in the first two chapters of Matthew and the third of four visitations from an angel. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the, wife, the child's life are dead. We see here a plural used, those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Nick pointed out last week in chapter 2, verse 3, that it was not just Herod who was concerned about a new king. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod didn't want a threat to his throne, but the Jews were disturbed too. The Jews didn't like Herod, but this verse in chapter 2, verse 20, we see Herod and all the Jews lumped together. The Jews feared Roman rule and interference. So if they called a ruckus and tri- caused a ruckus and tried to get rid of Herod, they'd be faced with the might of Rome and the possibility of someone worse being appointed to rule. Under Herod's rule, as bad as he had been, he'd kept Judea safe and had established a Jewish state. 
The Romans had also granted the Jews some special privileges and there was a fear that they would be taken away. There were exemptions from military service, from going to court on the Sabbath, from being required to portray the emperor's head on their coins, hence the need for the money changes in the temple that we read about later on in the Bible, and from having to offer sacrifices to the emperor as a deity. And Herod didn't just sit and do nothing during his rule. He built massive fortresses, splendid cities and palaces. His most grand work was the temple in Jerusalem, which he wholly rebuilt. The western wall in Jerusalem is the remains of that temple that is still standing today. Herod built aqueducts, roads, amphitheatres, bars. He embellished foreign cities and towns. He even patronised the Olympic Games in Greece, which is still running today, 2,000 years later. He stabilised the economy and brought prosperity to the kingdom. Many Jews were still eagerly awaiting a Messiah, who they believed would come as a military or a political figure and would throw off that yoke of Rome. They weren't expecting a baby boy born of humble origins who was born in a manger to be the Messiah. They couldn't risk someone causing them to lose that special relationship they had through Rome and their prosperity that Herod had helped them establish to just anyone who came along claiming to be the Messiah. And while many Jews were waiting for the Messiah, many had also given up altogether. They didn't want to risk losing their homeland because of a troublemaker. So I guess with Herod and the Jews, it was a case of better the devil you know. They wanted to hang on to what was familiar rather than risk all they had to a Messiah that they didn't know. So for the time being at least, they wanted to hang on to Herod. Again, before we judge the Jews too harshly, we need to stop and think about ourselves. Do we hang on to the familiar and comfortable because we are too afraid of what we might lose in Christ? So when did this happen? Well, Herod died in 4 BC and he died. when he died, he divided his kingdom between his three sons. Caesar Augustus gave an area of Judea to Archelaus. We don't know much about his reign, but he was bad enough that a deputation of Jewish and Sumerian people went to Rome to present charges against him and Augustus removed Archelaus from his rule and banished him and that happened in 6 AD. Verse 22 tells us that Mary and Joseph returned while Archelaus was ruling, which ended when the Romans took over in AD 6. After Archelaus is banished, Judea becomes a Roman province and a series of prefects are sent to rule, one of which later on would be Pontius Pilate. Experts think that the family was probably in Egypt for about a year or so in that time frame, between 4 BC and 6 AD, before they returned to Nazareth. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. For when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what, the, what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. The family is about to go back to Israel. They fled their country, fled a country that didn't have room for them. 
They had to have their baby in a stable because their own people didn't have room for them in the first place and where someone had tried to kill their son. Why go back? And why Nazareth? Well, Luke chapter 2 tells us that that was where Joseph was from in the first place. So I guess they were really returning home. Also, Matthew verse 22 says they went there because Archelaus didn't rule there. The lands of Galilee where Nazareth is were given to Archelaus's brother, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee throughout Jesus' life and ministry. So I guess they felt safer in Galilee than in Judea. Nazareth was home. Like I said, we don't know a lot about Archelaus's rule from history books other than he was unusually cruel and tyrannical. But if he was worse than his father, after what his father had done in verse 16, well, I don't know that I'd move back to Judea either. But Matthew goes on in verse 23 that they moved to Nazareth to fulfil prophecy. Nazareth was originally settled by people from the line of David. Jesus was from the line of David and there's a prophecy in Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 5 and it was a popular text in Judaism where it speaks of a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, King David's father, and a branch coming from its roots. This theme of a Messiah as a branch or shoot pops up in other parts of the New Testament too. People were waiting for this branch. The families moved to Nazareth was not just a move to change their scenery or to change their lifestyle. It was a move that anchored Jesus to those scriptures. He is the shoot from Jesse. He is the branch. He is the Messiah. Matthew also uses Nazarene as a slang expression for a person from a remote, despised area. But that too is a fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, where where we read in there that the Messiah would be despised. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was despised at his birth. There was no room for him. He was despised by many during his ministry, enough that they sent him to a death that was designed not just to execute him, but to humiliate him and tell the world how much he was despised. Jesus went to Nazareth to fulfil scripture. It was not an accident that he lived there. It was a town whose name was given in recognition of the hope of the coming Messiah branch in Isaiah 11 verse 1. This was God's plan. God was at work. He's active, he's alive and he was Emmanuel, God with us. The Messiah didn't come with fanfare or glory. He was born in a stable, became a refugee, fleeing for his life, and returned to live in a town that no one really thought that much of. Nazareth was a despised place, as Jesus too would be despised. Nathaniel displayed popular opinion when he said in John 1 verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Jesus wasn't part of the political, religious or military establishment like people were expecting. The story didn't go the way that we probably would have written it or made it happen. Rather, he fulfilled the prophecy of a Messiah who came from the common people 
who was despised but is the path of salvation to all people for all time. The nativity story isn't just a nice story about a baby being born. It's a story of God's plan through history, a plan of salvation that nobody could stop, whether it was Herod or the entire Babylonian Empire. History is his story and no one else's. That was true back then and it's true back it's true right now. I just want us all to let that sink in. God isn't a God of 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, taking his first steps on the earth. That's not all he is. He isn't just a God of the past. He's alive and he's with us right now. If you want to know how God is working today, all you have to do is listen to the testimonies on a Sunday morning. Those testimonies are so vital for us to hear because they tell us of God's acts here and now and how he's working. God's word was written for all time. Read it, study it, see how God acts. It's not just true of when it was written, it's true now. This passage we've looked at today tells us of God's prophecy, intervention and communication of his plan and he's as active today as he was then. God is at work, God is active, God is alive. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And as our worship team comes up, I'll just pray together as we finish. Lord, thank you that you are an alive, active God. Thank you that you came to earth to live and die for us. We praise you for the works of your hands that we can read about in the Bible and we can witness every single day here and now. Lord, we praise you for all that you do. Open our eyes to your handiwork. Let our hearts sing praise to you for all that you do. And as we celebrate your birth on earth this Christmas, we thank you and praise you that you are God with us. You are Emmanuel. Amen. Let's sing again. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love you to become a part of the Aspaptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.